Anything left over from any previous incarnation of this class? Did you all see the joke that Rambakta sent out this week? The one when he sent it through the internet. There's two Buddhist monks or two monks and they're walking along together and one is chuckling and one says to the other, Oh, that's a good joke. You tell that every lifetime and it never gets old. (laughs) (laughs) So anything left over from a previous incarnation that we haven't settled? All right. Number 81. Yogi Kagan was from India and was the master's disciple. Motivated by the common failing envy, he eventually turned against the guru. He continued to teach, however, and was lecturing one evening in Phoenix, Arizona, when, out of the blue, he asked, Is anyone here a member of Self-Realization Fellowship? Several of those present stood up, expecting to hear words of appreciation for the Master and his work. Instead, what they got was a tirade against the Master and his organization. Deeply offended, several of them them telephoned the Master that evening in Los Angeles and reported the outrage. Thank you for telling me, the master said. I will take care of the matter. Thus, he relieved them graciously of any further responsibility in the situation. Next, he telephoned Yogi Kagan. What he said to him, however, was not at all what anyone expected. God bless you, he said, for the good that you are doing. I bless you, our gurus bless you. He said nothing about the episode of the previous evening. Always, when facing negativity, his way was, if possible, to emphasize something positive. Well, that's quite something, isn't it? Anyway, also, Master, you know, it wasn't only that he knew that by creating disharmony, it would just create more disharmony. He also was perfectly aware of what would work with that man and what wouldn't. You know, if the man was gunning for an argument and was already projecting all that negative energy toward Master, Master knew that if he met it with any force of his own, then it would just escalate. I mean, one of the ways to deal with, I mean, that's the power of ahimsa. If somebody is antagonistic toward you, but you don't give them any, um, any vibration of the same type, that's the, in principle, in Patanjali, that the perfect practice of ahimsa is that no... A dissonance can arise in your presence because you, have, you give it absolutely nothing to feed on. So I mean, Kriyananda from time to time would have people say that they were going to tell him off for one reason or another and then he would often just go see, he heard that one man was, had really been telling everyone that he, he had something against Swami and he was going to really tell him off. So there was a group gathering and the man was there so Swami made a point of going over to sit with him <laughs> and he said he was just the soul of graciousness the other fellow all night. He just even though he acted like it when Swami was there, there was just nothing to fight against. It was all in his imagination. So Master must have known that with this man, because he was still his disciple, I mean, Swami makes that point at the beginning, this man was from India, was a disciple of the Master, but out of envy turned against him. So Master knew that the way to win this man back, which you see also the other factor in there is that Master himself had nothing at stake. And that's what is required for us to really work perfectly with other people. If we have something at stake, then we we always are thinking about our own reality. And we have to play out our own reality. And sometimes it's not inappropriate because we do have something at stake. 
And it would be um, inauthentic of us to pretend that we didn't. But if you don't, as Swami didn't and Master didn't, then you just look at the situation and you ask what would be the most helpful here. Many years ago in Seattle, before we had a center there, well actually this is really the reason we had a center there, there was this man, um, his name was Jeff Green. I don't know if he's still living or where he is or what he's doing. But he was very devoted to Master. He was a very charismatic character. He was an astrologer and had a lot of other things going for him and very energetic. And he pulled together a group uh, based on Master's teachings and then invited Ananda to come. And I actually was the one who went up um, to the group. And there were already like 30 people in the group. It was very dynamic. Um, We did a discipleship initiation there for them. And it was very promising. And that was actually the first step that ended up in our having the Seattle Temple that we have there now. Jeff was a very strong man in his own right, and he incorporated what he was doing as Ananda, and he appointed himself a spiritual director for life. Yeah, that's right. And there was a a bit of a hoo-ha about that. Um, This was at the very beginning of Ananda's expansion, a serious expansion from Ananda Village. We'd already, we had a small house in Sacramento, and we At that time, we probably had the house in San Francisco, too. So it wasn't like we had no other centers, but um, still, it was the first, certainly the first homegrown one, and it was farther away, and it was just different. San Francisco and Sacramento were still within Ananda Village orbit. And we we were all just very new at this, and so there was quite a lot of um, kerfuffle about it, and a good bit of outrage, and... Uh, so Swamiji invited him to come down, and because I was involved in it, since I was the emissary from Ananda Village, we'd go up there regularly. Swami had me over when Jeff came over, and they had lunch together, and Jeff was a very dynamic man, and they had a very interesting conversation, and we just chatted about many things related to the spiritual path, and at the very end of it, Swami said, um, you know, in fact, uh, the role of spiritual director has always belonged to me. He said, if you want to be spiritual director of that organization, then perhaps you should use another name than Ananda. And he said, oh, okay, I'll think about it. Went home and changed the name. (laughs) But it was the same thing. It was like, and then later Swami said, I love this, anybody with any spunk is not going to just sit there waiting to be told what to do from the central office. He said, when I see people with enough energy to really make something happen, I want to encourage and not discourage them. But, in fact, Swamiji was the spiritual director of anything called Ananda, so if he didn't want Swami to be, then maybe he should just use another name. It was just so casual. And it was a perfectly rational thought. Just like that. But the same idea, if he'd called him on the carpet and all of these other things, where would it have led? In fact... Oh, it's not in here. It's in some other notes that I was reading today. Swamiji talked about one of the disciples at Mount Washington um, after Master died, but while Swami was still there. And he was leading one of the churches. And Swamiji said he was a very talented and a very creative man. And he proved that he could be quite effective at what he did. He was a minister of one of the churches and was having a great deal of success. But he said the board of directors just was breathing down his throat all the time. You know, just hovering behind him, trying to manage everything that he did. And he finally just gave up and left. Because he just didn't have any scope to, be, to do what he needed to do. 
So there's the other aspect of it, which is for someone who's trying to spread a work, if you have people who will take initiative and will take responsibility and do have the magnetism to do some good work, you kind of, you cut them more slack. If you're, if you're wise, you cut them a lot more slack because very few people in this world can do anything, really, especially not really make something happen that isn't already a well-trodden path. As Swamiji said himself somewhere in one of the stories about his separation from SRF, he basically said, if I were fortunate enough to have had a man like me working for me at Ananda, far from expelling him, I would have wined him and dined him, non-alcoholic, of course, he said, wined him non-alcoholic and dined him vegetarian, (laughs) but given him all the support I could. And so also, Swami doesn't mention this, but this man continued to teach, was doing good work, and some master could, you know, take a little criticism. If a few few weak-minded devotees got turned away from master merely because this man said something against him, well, they they must not have been very strong in their path to start with. And the other factor, you know, just in, in between... Master said, don't worry, I'll take care of it, thus relieving the disciples of any more responsibility because he knew that they didn't have the spiritual depth to handle it properly from Yogi Kagan's point of view or from their own point of view. That it isn't merely what God wants, but who he wants it from. And sometimes we get this self-righteous idea that it's up to us. That comes out, I think, in another story. Or did it come out earlier with Mr. Jaycott? Um, was it earlier? There's the story about Mr. Jaycott, who there was some kind of a controversy in one of the churches, and a man named Mr. Jaycott saved the day. But then Master said, but it would have been nicer if you had done it with uh, more harmoniously or with less anger. And then eventually that anger, Swami writes, took the man off the path. So you see, ma- the Masters are never looking at it like we're looking at it. Oh, this man said something wrong. We have to stand up to him. But Master may know if you stand up to him, you will start a cycle in your, of disharmony in yourself that will have a far more deleterious effect than what this man said. And Master also looks at this man and says, the only point here is to save him as a disciple. What will save him as a disciple? And this, the, the importance that the Master's placed on harmony, we had this last week too when Master decided not to put Ramakrishna's statue there because he was afraid that his disciples in Los Angeles would cause a kerfuffle about it, and he just didn't want to um, draw that kind of negativity. Um, now, that's that, uh, that's a certain kind of disharmony. If there had been something at stake, Master was no coward. You know, he w- he wasn't afraid of controversy per se. It's just, what would be the point? I've read it so many times from Swamiji too, just the extreme importance of maintaining harmony. I even read a quote from Swami today, the competence of a leader is less important, is not important. What's important is maintaining harmony. That, that's a big one. Yeah, and he said a lot of things like that. And a master said that to Sister Gyanamata. He wrote to her, it's a, you know, when I leave Mount Washington or wherever he left, he left her in charge. And he, he wrote to her that it's how, how comforting it was for him to know she was there because she was a peacemaker. 
And that's, that was why he told her that was the comfort. He knew she would not lose any of the sheep, which was much more important to him than anything else. The parallel to that was back in 1972 when Swami went to India for the first time in 10 years. He went by himself and he left a man in charge. And I think I, I talked about this in class. And that man used his position to um, uh, express his... Uh, What's the right word? Rather promiscuous nature, right? He took advantage of his position. And uh, there was a very, very judgmental, self-righteous response from a lot of his peers, which was not the way to handle him. And in the end, as Swami said, his pride was so severely wounded that he had to leave Ananda. Swami's comment afterwards was, I knew he had that weakness, and I knew that putting him in a position of teaching would would make him vulnerable to his weakness but it was karma that had to be faced he said I couldn't just protect him from that karma he had to face the karma Swami said but I didn't expect to be 10,000 miles away when it happened because if Swami had been there he would have handled it in such a way that would have not lost him or at least he would have tried but as it was by the time Swami got back the situation had just polarized to such an extent that the man was too sensitive and too proud that's what Swami said he's a very proud man he said he had to, you had to give him a way to save face and instead you publicly humiliated him and that just backed him into a corner you see how different it is we go in these little tiny this is right, this is wrong, we have to stamp it out kind of energy. The Master only just wants to keep us moving forward. And he knows where we have to go and what we have to go through. He doesn't have this um, narrow-minded sense of propriety. Very interesting, isn't it? Any comments or questions? It is an extremely important teaching. Probably the most important teaching. Because the first thing that goes in spiritual organizations is charity. You know, uh, someone like, again, I, I was reading all this today, so I have, I have two threads going on in my head, but Swami talked about how Master uh, never was the head of an organization. He always ran an ashram. He didn't run an organization. He ran an ashram in which he is the guru, held everyone together by his magnetism. And he said things like, after I'm gone, you'll have to organize. But when Swami thought about it more subtly, SRF took that to mean that they had to get the rules down. But Master wanted us to organize along the same lines that he had organized, which is you organize it with magnetism, with spirit, and not with rules. And Swamiji, of course, when you think about Ananda, Ananda's always been, just it's just the magnetism that holds it together. We don't, we've, we've never had a lot of dictums. People sort of just move through it, but we're held together because we're, we want to be together. There's something else that holds us. But after someone of Swamiji's stature passes away, after the founder passes away, you know, that it, it, it's not so easy for other people to operate that way, and there's a tremendous temptation to make the rules. So we have to be very, very, very conscious, really, of every little decision that we make to make sure that we're following the Spirit, which is the letter, so to speak, because if you're only following the letter, we've lost it. Now, that's harder, 
And there is a point at which, um, yeah, all of these are from other notes, they're not from this book. Swamiji says, sometimes you're thinking about the individual and sometimes you have to think about the whole project. There was an example that came up, which is we had a, a, bo- a high school, a, a boarding high school at Ananda Village in the very early years. Um, Dina Nat, Maitri, and uh, Kumari, who lives in Hawaii now, all came through that school and are still with Ananda um, as high school students. And uh, it was a great scene. And the teachers, at one point, they had a student there and they said to Swami, you know, the boys' moods are so extreme that it's very difficult to deal with him. And Swami said, if he jeopardizes the whole school, you have to let him go. He said, if, if you can handle him, then try to help him. And that's when he said, at some points you have to think about the individual, but at other points you have to actually think about the whole. You can't sacrifice the whole thing um, if, if the whole thing is jeopardized. And in a small school like that, you know, one student who's just who was too far outside of the boundaries they were working in, could just pull the whole energy down. I don't really know. I don't know who the child was and I don't know what the decision was. But it was a very good principle. So there are times, and there have been times in Ananda's history, when Swamiji sacrificed is probably too strong a word, but maybe it's not. I know of a couple of instances where he just had to draw a line and and not, you know, one, one man left and wanted to come back, but Swami wouldn't let him come back because there were certain um, conditions that, it, 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 I don't want to explain it in detail, but there were certain conditions that, that he just didn't want to have, he didn't want to have that influence. So he just let the man go. It was uncharacteristic, but still he did it in a couple of others that I know of, where there was just too much at stake. It's everybody's karma, though. You have to realize if, if, if a man or a woman gets caught in that, that's because it's their karma. It's not that somebody's not being right to them. It's that you have to make balanced decisions. However, charity, charity, charity. And this, you know, in this too with his Yogi Kagan, I remember what Swami had said to us as leaders once. It's presumptuous not to take yourself into account. Even if, some, even if a stern option might be appropriate, if it's not good for you, don't do it. Of course, Master wasn't bound by that, but Master may have been protecting his disciples from falling into that. So, okay, does that all make sense? The very important principles, that's why I was dealing with it. Okay, number 82. Many people, some of whom unfortunately were Indians, spoke against the Master during his lifetime. Why Indians? Perhaps they didn't like his having brought the spiritual teachings of India to the materialistic West, especially since they themselves were trying to adjust to Western ways. Or perhaps they didn't like the fact that the Master adapted those teachings to the West instead of keeping them rigidly orthodox. Or perhaps, indeed most probably, his enormous energy made them simply uncomfortable. For people of low energy always tend to resent people of high energy especially if both of them are in the same fields. Swami's mentioned that so many times. Just low energy just doesn't like high energy and there's often no other explanation that's just threatened by it. Dr. Haridas Chaudhary told me in San Francisco in 1962, when I first arrived in America, I met a number of people in the Indian community who spoke against Swami Yogananda. I finally got to meet him myself 
and found that, for his part, he had nothing but good to say about his critics. I knew then on whose foot the shoe fit. <laughs> but that's uh, a very interesting one also. You know, just because people say something, it doesn't mean it's true. You always have to listen. Um, always, I just wrote, you reveal yourself and what you criticize. I, I find it a lot of fun, and I believe me, I don't always succeed at this. But I found it to be a very interesting practice to tell the truth without ever saying anything unkind. You know, just because it's not fun if, life isn't fun, if you're always just glossing over things. I don't think it's helpful to just always, unless you really perceive the world that way. I mean, if you do just look everywhere and uh, think that everything is really beautiful and that's really your deepest, most sincerest feeling, by all means be that way. And it's also, if we have a discriminating mind, you don't want to always be criticizing because all you're talking about is your own unsettled inner nature. So there's a place in the middle where the human comedy is quite enjoyable and people's uh, foibles are quite interesting and instructive and it doesn't hurt to know what people are interested in, what they're doing, you know, just what they're inclined toward do. He, he writes in here, I think it was in here, about um, whoever his, right, right, what was his secretary's name? The secretary on the, uh, who came over on the boat with him who was fond of the ladies, as Master said, and he was uh, Rashid, Rashid, right. And Master, he, he, he writes about it, but he writes there about this man's weakness, but he writes about it in such a, a loving way. He was fond of the ladies. So he was sitting in the park, you know, and Master came up and called his name and scared him. But you could see how good-hearted that was. But Master was perfectly aware of this man's weakness. He didn't pretend that he didn't have it. He knew it was there. So it's not so much whether you see what people are actually like as to whether you just love them anyway and just enjoy them. There was a man at Ananda. Um, I wrote about him in, the, in my book about Swami Kriyananda, the story called The Blue Moped, which was the man who was the motorcyclist and Swami took the accident on his little motorbike, I believe, for the sake of this man. And that, that's what that man also believes. His name was uh, Ram Leela for a long time. And then uh, Swami changed his name to Hanuman because he felt Ram Leela was too much of a joke because he really was the play of God. He'd been a hell's angel, literally. A hell's angel's a big, tough motorcycle guy. He was a big, tough motorcycle guy who became a, a sweet devotee. But he did a... He, um, he just, at one point he, he went to India and uh, he started talking against Swami. And uh, just, he, he didn't behave well. And when he came back and Swami saw him, he was in the back, and he came back to see Swami. He was a very childlike man. He's passed away now. Swami called him up. And when he came up, Swami sort of tugged on his hair and he said, you've been up to mischief, haven't you? <laughs> And he said, yes, sir. <laughs> he said, don't do it anymore. But that's all he had to do. You know? But he had been up to mischief. And Swami needed to scold him. But he was such a child, it was hard to... You know, he'd just been up to mischief. And he shouldn't have done it. Had to be spoken to. But how different it is, isn't it? From all the things that you could say. Hmm. And so, you know, you, you hear people criticizing... And you have to stop for a minute and ask, why are they doing that? It's very easy to get sucked in. Swami um, himself tells the story in the path about when he was a young monk 
and the other monks told him about this, you know, Master had set up this committee that was going to fix everything at Mount Washington, and Swami listened to their criticisms and rushed in and um, sort of was uh, reading the riot act to one of the senior nuns. And afterwards, Master, you know, called them all on the carpet and spoke to them, you young hotheads rushing, what do you think you're doing rushing into the office talking like that? And suddenly Swami realized that he just bought into their criticisms. He hadn't really stopped to think what the truth of this might actually be. And so we have to be really careful because negativity is something that you're always going to meet. You're going to hear people. So when people say critical things, you know, look at them carefully. Feel their vibrations carefully and ask yourself, why, why am I hearing this? You know, why am I hearing this? And then sometimes it, it's, it's right, but often, why am I hearing this? Why are these people telling me this? Why are they saying it? What do they have at stake here? And let me find out for myself. So, worth knowing. These are big lessons because these come all the time. Okay? Number 83. Master had given me and others for Christmas a copy of The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. When I thanked him, he said, That is a wonderful book. It is no mere imitation of Christ. It is Christ. I don't often encourage people to read other books, but this one I recommend unreservedly. Thomas Akempis, he remarked, must have been a great saint. Is that, I mean, Thomas Akempis, I remarked, must have been a great saint. Is that so? A very great saint, he replied. I think I just spoke about Imitation of Christ yesterday or Sunday, didn't I? Yeah, it is a good book. That's all I can say. But Master, he also said, Master says, I don't often encourage people to read other books. It's also a notable point there. <clears throat> now, it's a rule within Master's organization that you can't. But what we really need to understand is why would I want to? Because you expose yourself to the vibrations of other lines of teaching. And, you know, it's a, it's a fine line because a lot of us, I do, I read for recreation. So you sort of are thinking, what, you know, what shall I read and how shall I read? I read biographies of, of a lot of different people, but including saints. But whenever they start teaching, I always skip over it because <laughs> I don't feel like I need other teachings, but I don't mind the example of other people's spiritual lives. So it's sort of, I mean, I never did that on purpose and I don't do that out of discipline. It's just that I don't find anybody's exposition of the path as interesting as Swami's. So all I have to do if I'm reading somebody else's, I have to sort through until I can figure out how it's like what Swami said somewhere. <laughs> and then I ask myself, why would I do that? So I just go on. That's my own way of dealing with it. But it is. It's interesting how he said that. I don't often encourage. But it's what Master said. You know, don't read all the saints. Just read those of our line. Which Swami interpreted to mean those whose spiritual path led to real inner communion. And sort of see. You know, you have to follow your own intuition on these things. I... uh, I'm not sure if I said this in this class or I think I said it to someone personally. I was talking to someone who had been involved in Nazareth for a time and he was told by a monk not to read the path. Did I tell you that? Okay. Um, He was told by, this was, you know, he he now lives at Anand and has for a long time, but prior to that he considered trying to be a monk in SRF and he went to Hidden Valley and got to know a lot of the monks there. Here I'm talking about them, but it's an instructive teaching. 
I said, don't criticize and listen to me. Okay, but um, he was there and he, he found the path and he mentioned to one of the monks how deeply inspiring he found it. All these stories about Master that he had never read before and he, you know, was offering it to the monk. He didn't know about the politics of it. And the monk told him immediately that you should never read that book. It's not a good book to read. You shouldn't read that book. So I was talking to the young man who's with Ananda now, and I said, you know, in addition to everything else, what he was actually saying to you, what that monk was saying to you is, you're not capable of knowing whether you're inspired or not. So it wasn't only Swami that he was criticizing. He was also criticizing your own capacity to have intuition, which is where the the rule-bound system actually becomes seriously detrimental to the devotee. And now you could also see there's a certain security in that because maybe our intuition isn't well-developed and we may be finding inspiration where we would be better not diluting our focus. Because that's because a lot of people will bring me books and tell me this is so good, it's almost like Master's teaching. And I, my response is, if it's almost like Master's teaching, why don't you just read Master's teachings? But people will say to me, I find it, you know, I was able to understand things from this book that I wasn't able to understand from over here. I'm not going to tell them that's not true. Because to tell them that's not true is to say, well, you don't, you know, you're not capable of thinking and having your own experience. And in the end, I think that's far more detrimental than it is to just allow people to run their own story until they find it. There's also a story in the uh, Kriyananda book uh, that Diana gave. And Diana was very new on the path at that time. She was actually living in this area. Um, this is Naya Swami Diana who lives in Gorgan now. And uh, she was learning about lots of things and she was taking this course as it happened in Reiki healing. And she was so excited about it and she was just telling Swami all about this fabulous course in Reiki and all that she was learning and so on. Swami said, matching her enthusiasm, well, if it's so good, maybe I should take it. And then Swami, Diana came up like this and said, oh, Swami, you don't need it, like that. And then it, that's, it just left. And like, over time, Diana began to discover that there were really fundamental differences between very, very basic principles of Reiki and very prin- basic principles of Master's teaching, um, primarily having to do with will and the application of will and the role that willpower plays in your ability to channel. It's, it's no need to reconcile it. But she began to realize that there were contradictions, so she dropped the Reiki. But then time passed longer and she just kept remembering that incident with Swamiji. And she realized that in her heart the reason she felt he didn't need it was because he got everything he needed from Master's teachings. So then she thought to herself, well, why am I not getting everything I need from Master's teachings? And she had to realize it didn't have to do with Master's teachings. (laughs) And it was, it's like the, the, whole, the whole incident just sat there for a decade. But she realized after... But if, if Swami had said to her, tried to reason with her, tried to tell her anything, it, she wouldn't have known what to do with the contradiction. Because when you're going in a certain direction and somebody of authority just contradicts you, what does it do to you? You just don't know what to do after that. 
another woman who'd been part of SRF, was contradicted in her natural inclinations very early in her monastic life. And she said from that point forward she was just frozen. Many years later she eventually left. But she just didn't know what to do because... But where Swami just sort of took her enthusiasm and kind of moved it and let, let it run its own course. Of course, that's much more difficult. It's easier just to say this is where you fit. But in the end, if you're just in a box... Um, as, how did Swami put it? He put it in the reading for this last Sunday, but I didn't end up including it. He said... Uh, Mere belief that's not based on experience. Um, He said, he was talking about when dogmatic people are confronted with a new truth. He said, it takes energy to consider a new truth and to do the experiment to find out if your experience supports it. And he said, and most people who are accustomed to dogma just simply um, don't have the energy to open themselves to a new experience and they just try to push that away. And they become very intent in pushing it away. That's what you see with dogmatic religions all over us. They're just, you know, we, we try to come in and talk about how meditation is perfectly a part of what you're doing, how Christianity as an example is the most guru-oriented religion in the world, <laughs> you know. So how can you really be against gurus? But it takes energy to expand yourself to incorporate new ideas and see if it actually conforms to your experience. And so people just prefer not to have to put out that kind of energy. And so you just stay where you are and your belief gets more and more confined and brittle. Now, where did, what was that related to? What did we just, oh, it was talking about Dr. Chaudhry and about imitation of Christ. Okay, any comments or thoughts about that? You know, I never have, never have quite known what to do with Master's with the suggestion that we should only read Master's teachings, Master Swami, Our Path, because I've gotten a lot of inspiration from reading a lot of biographies, and I know that's not outside the pale. And I also have never been comfortable telling people what they can and can't read. So I think it's better to try to understand what the implications of certain actions are and then um, follow it through for yourself. See where it takes you. So, yes. This is just uh, more, I would say, recreational reading, but uh, I've been rereading it's a biography of John Adams, and isn't that one that um, that Swami actually wrote, uh, read, and mentioned it? Do you remember that at all? I know he's read various of the founding fathers and been yeah. quite impressed. The whole story of the founding of America—it's just quite wonderful. A, I he, he likened the founding of America. He likened here, I'm really on SRF tonight after saying I try not to say bad things, but um, he likened the founding of America to the way Ananda, we were in the middle of the lawsuit when he was reading about American history a lot, and he talked about you know, the David and Goliath nature of the battle uh, when it was the colonies, American colonies against the British crown and Ananda versus SRF and the sense of Um, divine support for the David side of it. You know, the founding fathers of our country were very mystical and they they felt that they were following a a higher calling that transcended all other considerations and they simply would not be stopped. It's, It's really quite an inspiring story, you know, when you read it properly. 
They were really great people, many of them. Yeah. That was when I said to Swamiji, after reading some of those, some biographies, that um, America is a Dwapar Yuga country. And Master, of course, came to America to start self-realization. I mean, he could have gone anywhere on the planet, but he came to the U.S., even to California. And because it was possible to start something like this here, because of the freedom of religion, because of the mindset of the American people, and uh, the, the inherent spirituality of this culture, founded for religious freedom, and just the nature of America allowed it. So when you think about how long the cycle of um, these avatars' mission are, you know, the, the very founding of America had to be part of the whole thrust. And so I proposed to Swami, you know, we must have been part of the founding of America. Don't you think it was part of the Guru's plans? And uh, I said to my, I said, I, I sort of feel very inspired when I hear about it. I feel a personal connection to it. But all Swami did was at the dinner table once say, Asha feels quite like she might have been there during the American Revolution. What do you all think? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't really get much more of a response. That's, a, that's as serious as he ever took it for me. He didn't say he was there or anything like that. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Atma Jyoti on this side. One of the things, one of the things I was pleased to, to discover was there's a lot um, that I don't, that I haven't seen or heard that Swamiji said. Like the other night, we heard, we watched uh, a video from 1997, mm-hmm. and it was brilliant. Mm-hmm. He was so brilliant, and he, you know, he talked about samadhi, and I mean, he talked about it so beautifully that I thought, I, I mean, I just haven't read anything that he's written quite like that. I was so delighted. I think we're going to be as many more incarnations as we have. I think we'll just keep, keep reading and rediscovering. That's certainly been my experience. I mean, I, I've been giving a, a Nanda Sunday services for 30 years or so, and I've just discovered the promise of immortality, <laughs> which is his commentary on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita. Which, I mean, of course I've had it, and of course I've read it. I believe I've even given classes on it. But suddenly it's just speaking to me. Who knows why? It's just, and that doesn't even count the thousands of hours of recordings. And it doesn't really matter when. It just all of them have pearls in it. Yeah, we're buried in stuff. However, it's all, it all requires a very high level of energy to meet it. And, you know, I can't always meet it. I can't always, I'm just not always at the mental state where I wish to rise that high. Sometimes I wish to have recreational reading instead. I mean, I'm not proud of that fact, but I only say it just because it's true, because I don't want to put out a, a, a face that's false. But in principle, the more I read of Swami and Master's writings exclusively of anything else, the, you know, the happier I get. Yeah, especially in teaching. Even when I read of wonderful books about Anandamoy Ma, Every time she started teaching, I kept turning the pages. It, no, not deliberately, it's just that I just don't get, in, I don't get interested. That I know. I, I know that from Swami, and I like his articulation the best. Um, and I love, you know, there's, I've read things about her, by her and for her that are lovely. But I, I just prefer Swami's articulation. It speaks to my heart the best. 
Okay. Any other comments or thoughts? But see, you see, that's my actual experience. It's not a dogma with me. I would read anything if I felt inspired by it, but it's not a dogma. It's just the way I feel. Okay. And you, okay? Number 84. In an episode described in my book, The Path, someone tried to, by underhanded means, to create a serious problem. This is about, this is the Mr. Jaycott one. To create a serious problem for one of the SRF churches. The master was physically incapacitated at the time. It's so interesting. As he explained to us later, a guru, as he, as he explained to us later, a guru sometimes assumes onto his own body some of the karma of his disciples. It's a whole story in itself. His illness was not caused by any karma of his own. It was to lessen the karmic burdens of others. He told a small group of us afterward, during that trial in the church, I was lying helpless in bed. Divine Mother appeared to me as a little girl and stood on my forehead. I understood from her then that everything was going to be all right. I mean, why would she come as a little girl and stand on his forehead? Why wouldn't she just say, it's going to be all right? (laughs) Mr. Jacot, a devoted student of the Master's, was the person who had resolved the situation. He'd done so by publicly denouncing what, as he had soon realized, was a dishonest trick. Later on, the Master thanked him. He added, however, the good that you did would have been greater had you employed more harmonious means. It is never good, even with good intentions, to create wrong vibrations by anger and harsh words. I guess it's in the path that Swami goes on to say that that quality in Mr. Jaycott later led him away from the path. What a strange karma that he actually had the good karma to save the situation but he set up dissonant vibrations. I mean, that just it, it, it has to be said again and again, Master put so much stake, Swami put so much stake by not merely what happens, but how it happens. And, and we're always having to think about what you're creating, because what, whatever you send out is going to ultimately come back to you. Could the situation have been saved by more harmonious means? Master's implying that it could. Mr. Jacob stood up and publicly denounced what was actually a trick, could he have confronted the man privately? Could he have been more centered when he did it? Could he have gotten, talked to people quietly and gotten them together and then they could have taken a stand that didn't have to be done in such a dramatic way? You know, a lot of times one of the ways you measure is by how um, compulsively you feel the need to speak. That's, that's how I began to sort of discern not merely what I could say, but what God wanted me to say. When I was extremely over-eager to say it, I began to be a little suspicious. Because if you have nothing at stake, you remain quietly centered in yourself, and if God wants you to speak, he'll make sure that you have an opportunity to speak. But if you're being pushed to say it, I mean, there's two kinds of being pushed. One is that the words come out of your mouth because God wants them to come out of your mouth. The other is that you're impatient to say it. And the impatient to say it is the one that you have to be really careful about. So you can imagine Mr. Jaycott being quite impatient to say what he had to say and uh, that not being so good for him. Uh, Let's take a short break. Okay. 
Number 85. On the subject of renunciation, the Master said, If you forsake truly for God, you will receive a hundredfold, as Jesus promised. And as Jesus said also, persecution. No one escapes persecution, for God wants to be sure of his devotee. One has to be willing to suffer opposition for choosing the spiritual path over the ways of the world. Oh, that's just so unfortunate, isn't it? It's a very strange part of the path. You know, one of the, one of the things about the imitation of Christ, which is so interesting, it's, it's just so much about um, overcoming the ego and so much oriented in that direction of just, um, you know, just how the world will always oppose you. There's, there's very little in the imitation of Christ about uh, the middle way at all. And, and it's, um, I, I, because I, I've told you, I just really, really seriously read that book in the last couple of years. I never had before. I never could get into it before is actually the truth. But it really isn't about a balanced middle way. It's like, it's like uh, sadhu beware. It's just way over here where it says, if you're serious about this, this is what's going to happen. And just don't think that you're going to just tread your way comfortably through and keep all the pieces in order what's really going to happen to you is that it's going to be different and, and there's just no way around that um, we resist that on a very con- I resist that on a very continuous basis you just keep trying to find the loophole in that that there just must be somewhere where I can bring just a little with me that's what Sister Gyanamata said uh, everything had to be taken away from me even that which was mine by right which harmed no one that's her phrase but you can imagine sort of in the solitude of meditation what that came to you know to be able to say that mine by right which harmed no one think about how many pieces you go down and you know what you're clutching in your hand at that point that God has taken away from you even the, when uh, Durga Mata, in the monologue for Meeting of the Masters, when that they, she talked about that interchange between Master and Divine Mother, Master had the vision of Divine Mother, and Divine Mother, Durga says, during that vision, was criticizing all of the disciples for their shortcoming, and the whole thing is so outside of what I can anybody can even think. Master is criticizing. Durgamata for being selfish because a guest came and she refused to give up her room. I mean, imagine the whole context. She had to give up her room. Gyanamata talks about going and sleeping in the laundry room or in the attic somewhere, not having any room of her own. Master was running these ashrams and people would come in and there weren't that many spaces and people would just give up their rooms so that the guests could have places to stay. And Divine Mother scolds Durga because she didn't do that one time I remember one time a guest needed the house I was living in and I didn't give it to him and uh, I always remembered it I don't know if Divine Mother will scold me ultimately but I remember very vividly someone asked and I said no I felt like I had reached my limit but I, I haven't forgotten so that was almost 30 years ago probably 30 years ago I still remember I still remember making the decision and I still regret it. it was the wrong decision 
It's really strange, isn't it? I, I remember uh, uh, Bernadette of Lourdes and the story of her life when she was close to the end of her life. She was lamenting that her mother once worked hard to make a soup and uh, Bernadette had told her mother she didn't like it and wouldn't eat it. And she was weeping over that decision because you, you just if you're used to walking where you're supposed to walk and you step outside of it, it doesn't, it doesn't make any difference where you were, you know, on the spectrum compared to everyone because on the spectrum compared to yourself you stepped outside of Dharma and that's really all that matters. In fact, people are not being your friends when they say, oh, it's all right, you're so good in so many other ways. I mean, if, you have a, if you're having an exaggerated response, but still, I mean, Bernadette was weeping because she didn't eat her mother's soup. She was a very, you know, very pure soul. And so it's, it's, it's only yourself. It's, I, I, where is it? Is it when uh, Sri Yukteswar talks about Haranyaloka? Somewhere in the high astral worlds, or some description of the astral worlds, where how sensitively people are aware is that in the Hiranyaloka they're so sensitively aware of their attunement with spirit that the slightest aberration from that causes them intense pain. Whereas we just gallop along in our egoic, selfish ways and don't even notice. But it doesn't mean that it's okay. And uh, where was the context? There's a story, I think, Master, well, I know once with Swami, um, he was guiding a devotee in a certain way and Someone else suggested, well, I think that, you know, so-and-so needs more time to themselves or something like that. So I just turned and said, uh, let me decide what they need. You know, just don't interfere. Anybody, that's, I think Master said, anybody who loves you, who tries to love you more than your mother is a witch. Is that what this phrase? But he was saying, anybody who tries to tell you that the guru doesn't know what you need is not your friend. So I remember once Swami disciplined me very appropriately and rather sternly and somebody tried to comfort me and it was very interesting. I was really interested in my response. I turned and said, don't ever talk to me like that. Meaning, don't, don't tell me that it's okay for me to make Swami wrong. You know, he was right and I know he was right and you're not helping me by saying that. That's the get thee behind me Satan moment. I myself have expressed that to Swami. Oh, Swami, you're working too hard. You don't need to get thee behind me, Satan, he said, literally. <gasps> oh, I said, I'm fighting on the wrong side. He said, you are, and I don't appreciate it. That was what he said. There's very stern words from him. But he was right. So, so no one escapes persecution. That's where we were. It's a very, it's an odd thing because we're so used to judging things by the nature of the world. You know, and we're so used to thinking that if everything goes right, we're, everything is going right. And uh, I, when uh, Peter Caddy, who was the leader of Findhorn at that time, was visiting Swami Kriyananda at Ananda Village, and that particular day we were having the uh, adventure we had with our neighbors, um, where we had a mailbox out on Tyler Foot Road. Now the mailman drives in, but we had a mailbox on Tyler Foot Road, and we would put up the mailbox and it would say Ananda, and then our neighbors would steal it, smash it, knock it over 
and then we'd put it up a bigger, stronger one, and they would steal it or smash it and knock it over. You know, they didn't, as Swami said, they were very anti-authority, and we were the only visible authority in the whole area, so they just went after us. Um, They were, you know, just kind of dropouts. What do they call it now? Oh, they have a word for it. The planter's economy, I think, is what they call it. Um, Paula used to call it the harvest people. These are now they now they all grow medicinal marijuana, but they used to just grow marijuana. And, and Paula had this uh, when we had Mountain Song in in Nevada City, which was a women's clothing store. Every fall and every spring, the harvest people would come in, and there would be these ladies who lived out on the. Uh, they were the planters, and they would uh, pay for all their money in cash with uh, from rolls of hundred dollar bills. <laughs> Oh, the harvest people are here, she would say. She was just so cheerful. (laughs) Total cash economy. Um, Let's see now, what could I have been talking about? Oh, yes, knocking the mailbox down. And uh, finally, Kent White, who was very industrious and a very strong man, Kent White dug a hole four feet down and made a concrete pillar that went four feet into the ground and then came all the way up into this huge concrete platform and he said you know their trucks will get smashed before this will knock over and then he built this big thing which he bolted onto the concrete and it lasted longer than most but then somebody came at night and pried it up and then for years after that years after that we had this concrete plinth that was just right there and we gave up and somebody would just go out to the the road and meet the mailman and he would some, every once in a while he would just drop the bag right on the plinth and that would be it and then we'd, we'd take it in. But anyway, Peter Caddy was there and I was talking about the mailbox. I had to tell Swami. I came over in the afternoon and said, well, sir, they got the mailbox finally. And, but he and Peter just laughed so delightedly over it. And Peter said, oh, yes, if they're not persecuting you, you're not doing enough good work. It means you have to try harder. <laughs> it's just... And I remember once when there was something about persecution like that. Uh, it was when Swami's dome, part of the, the physical setting was fun. It was when Swami's whole house was just the, the living room. And where the piano was now was the kitchen. And uh, where the fireplace is now was behind a wall and that was his office. And I, we could, you could talk across the whole room even if you couldn't see each other because there was no, none of the walls went up. I was in the kitchen and I said something about I had to do with the mailboxes and the persecution and somebody was back at his typewriter and then he, in his big voice he projects across the dome he says, well Asha, he says naturally we'll meet a little resistance we're trying to transform a whole society and it's going to take a little time <laughs> that's what I always think when you know, people resist us well, we're transforming a whole society naturally it will take a little time but you, 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 you from the persecution point of view, seriously speaking, you, you can't just think that everybody's going to like you for doing this. And at our, our experience collectively from 1990 to uh, 2002, which was from when SRF filed its lawsuit all the way through the second character assassination lawsuit and the whole big mess, it was, we grew up. We got to decide whether we were really just going to play at being in the, on the path or we were actually going to be on the path. Because prior to that, it, it, was, it was just a lark. You know, everything, it was just so fun. 
everything was just fun. We just never, we were always surrounded by wonderful people and everybody loved us and we just had such a good time. I mean, except our neighbors knocking down the mailbox, but that was trivial. But we really met opposition, you know, real, serious, unscrupulous, unrelenting opposition, really mean-spirited opposition that just never went away for 12 years. And it, it was the making of those of us who had to face it, really. Because it was like, wow, why am I on this path? And, you know, if this gets worse, you know, at what point would I give up? There was a, an interesting moment, uh, slightly, it's, this isn't persecution, but it's that same question. Uh, Danny Levin at that time was a salesman for Crystal Clarity, and Swami had just, was just publishing the little books of the secret of happiness and so on. Believe it or not, we were the first ones to really put out that kind of book. Now it'd be, it's quite common, but we put out these little books and it was a, it was a gold mine for a little period of time. Um, we had a good sales force with Danny and others and that book was just really helping us financially. Uh, there were 12 of them or more by the end. And uh, we had a, it, it was just really getting traction. And we had a distribution contract, as you often do, with some... We had an exclusive contract with someone. And Danny was at some professional convention and we were approached by the equivalent of Costco. I think it was called something else than maybe Price Club or something. But somebody with a really big order wanted one of our books. And, but in order to do that, he would have to turn his back on this other distributor or break the contract or be unscrupulous about it. And he, he, he was, uh, was such a big order. And he started talking to some of the other reps at the convention. And he began to realize that they were asking him one question. How much money would you make? And he finally realized that they were asking him, if the price is high enough, by all means sell your integrity. (laughs) And when he finally just got that that's what they were saying, you have an agreement with this person who's stuck by you, but just dump them if the price is right. And of course then he said, no, we just can't do that. And, you know, and, and then they weren't able to... So it had to just go by the wayside. But where there's Dharma, there's victory. But it still, it was just like he said, that's the advice he got from everyone. You know, what's the price? So, is that really so? What's the price? If the price gets too high, at what point do I give up? I'm not going to be glib about myself. I don't mean money. But who knows? You know, how solitary and misunderstood can you get and still um, not try to buy your way out of it? Yeah, interesting. Praise be to God, we will never be tested. But who knows? So, on that cheerful note, let's go on. Number 86. Desires, the Master said, but you know because Jesus promised it it's not just like accidental so you also have to feel you're not being punished when your family turns on you or your best friends turn on you or all that number 86 desires the master said are the greatest obstacle on the spiritual path I see it he added as a war with people fighting to achieve victory some are killed 
by bullets of desire and must be reborn to renew the struggle. Others, after great difficulties, win through to victory and have no need to return to this material plane. Another time he said, I see the spiritual path as a race. The devotees are running, running. Some of them, their strength sapped by desires, drop out of the race. Some of them even begin running in the opposite direction. When someone wins at last, however, he achieves eternal blessedness, blessedness in God. Desires come, of course, in differing degrees of intensity. All of them, the Master said, must eventually be fulfilled. I once asked him, All desires, sir, even trivial ones, unfulfilled at the time, that one later forgets about? What about such insignificant desires as the mild wish for an ice cream cone? Must even that idle wish be fulfilled eventually? He shocked me by answering quite seriously, Oh, yes. <laughs> Dr. Lewis once told me he had been glancing over a new car one day. Watch your desires, doctor, the master warned him. It may seem, considering the infinite number of desires that ripple across the mind, that liberation must remain eternally an impossible dream. Fortunately, such is not the case. For one thing, as the Master once told me, and as I've quoted earlier, when ecstasy comes, everything goes. For another, as he explained to us more than once, it is possible even during one deep meditation to be freed through visions of the karmas of many lifetimes. So that's the answer. But you know, what, it, what that's really saying, which is actually an interesting point, is that we have to be absolutely one-pointed in our desire for God. So any lingering need that perceived by us as a need, a desire, is like, I, I have to have that for my happiness, that something is required for my happiness. To whatever extent you have the thought that something is required for my happiness that is not already yours in the spirit, it's going to create a little oscillation in your consciousness. So that's really how you have to think about it. Because he adds in there that in vision, in other words, you, 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 you re-experience it, but you don't necessarily have to actually eat the ice cream cone. But you would re-experience the, the energy that was drawing you out and be able to release it and let it go. Just let it go in that way. I mean, I, it's not something that I know how to do, so I can't really say it, but you can imagine what it would be like. But that's what it's talking about. Because all of it... Um, you know, it all of it is the, the difference between stillness and oscillating. And here we are when we are completely, all of duality has resolved and we realize that everything is within us as one and then we have a desire and it would just move you out, whatever that might be. I mean, we all, we all experience it in a, in, you know, it's like everything on the highest level happens on a lower level. 
you're just perfectly comfortable, you're perfectly contented, then you become a little hungry. You know, you're, you're perfectly relaxed, you're just about to go to sleep, and then some thought of something you didn't say comes to your mind, or some anxiety about something over here. You're just something, everything is still and then it begins to oscillate. So that's all that's happening. So it, what he's saying is that every oscillation has to be, has to cease, and there has to be no temptation again to move. And that's, that's the war we're fighting all the time. Am I completely content and fulfilled in myself, or are all these things pulling me? And we, we, we you know, we have this fight. I, I, I talked about this in several places, but... Um, that we have our experiences and then we have this whole belief system that we build up about what actually caused them and what actually happened. Whereas nothing actually caused them and nothing actually happened, we ourselves became restless. And so we become restless and we go out and we start seeking fulfillment in this way and then this person responds and this is my reaction and then I didn't feel this way and then that person's energy mixed with mine or whatever happened. But it didn't really, none of that actually caused it. What caused it was that I moved off-center at some point. I mean, moving off-center is, you know, to want to get married, to have a child, to... Um, have an ambition to need to earn money. You know, think about how, if you think the opposite of it, I think of the story of Ramana Maharshi, who when he was, what, in his late teens, he just walked away from his house and he found some underground cave under some temple and he just sat down and started meditating. And he wasn't thinking, where am I going to eat? Who's going to take care of me? How will I be warm? How will... Nothing. He just had this one-pointed thought and he just went and followed it. And that's, you know, how different is that from I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, where will I live, how will I eat? So we have to live according to our own natural rhythms. We simply can't live otherwise. But even in the midst of what we're doing, we have to recognize where it all comes from. And that's why when people do things, you don't react because why would you react? Nothing is actually happening. They're just oscillating. And what does that have to do with me? (laughs) That's not how we live, most of us. But if you know what the truth is, when you stray from it, you know where to go back to. That's what I felt when I got onto the spiritual path. I had a point of reference. Prior to that, I had no point of reference. Everything was just a rock rolling downhill. But once I knew at least what the principles were, well, you just start fighting the right battle. And the battle is no longer to dominate and make them do what I want. The battle is to just, whenever the oscillation gets too much, I bring it back to center. This is where the great emphasis we were talking about earlier on harmony. Mr. Jacot saved the church, but he did it in such a way that it caused an oscillation that kept him going. And so when the master wants harmony, doesn't want to create disharmony, he doesn't want to start these waves. He has to ask himself. That doesn't mean, I mean, master was William the Conqueror and you know, he, could, he went to war and, and conquered nations and administered as a king, but he didn't oscillate within himself. You can, you can project energy 
without moving off your center. That's what we're trying to do. Interesting, huh? Comments, thoughts, questions? Okay, we started at 81 and we ended at 86. Okay, 81 to 86. All right.